Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan Bosler, and I'm the Connections Director here at the church. Uh, for those of you that are football fans, you probably watched on January 23rd as the Tampa Bay Buccaneers faced off against the Los Angeles Rams in the NFC Championship game. It, the winner of that game would move on to the Super Bowl. This was Tom Brady's second year as the Bucs quarterback, and it was also uh, his second trip to uh, the NFC Championship game. Now, last year, they went on from this game to win the Super Bowl, where Tom Brady was actually named MVP. So the expectations were sky high. Uh, but unfortunately, the Bucks lost in heartbreaking fashion uh, to a Rams field goal as the time expired. It, during the postgame press conference, Tom Brady looked uh, disappointed. Uh, he looked tired. And after an illustrious 22-year career as the most accomplished football player uh, in its history, he looked ready to retire. Uh, and, and a week later, that, that's what he did. He, he retired. And so it came as no surprise that, uh, that the football that Tom Brady threw to his receiver, Mike Evans, with three minutes and seven seconds left in the game, uh, turned up for sale on an auction site. Now, sports memorabilia, uh, you know, folks, uh, you know, estimated that in the future that this football could be worth well over a million dollars because now, you know, this was the last touchdown that Tom Brady ever threw. Uh, one shrewd gentleman uh, outbid all others for uh, the coveted prize football, costing him a whopping $518,618. But on March 13th, uh, Tom Brady uh, shocked uh, the world when he announced that uh, he was unretiring and coming back for his 23rd season. Imagine, imagine how the guy who bought that football felt, you know, because, because now it meant that uh, the football was, was basically worthless. It, he expected to be sitting on a gold mine, uh, but now uh, his wife expected to win every future argument that, that they could ever get into because all she had to say was, oh, but let's talk about that stupid football you bought. <laughs> As we enter into Holy Week today on, uh, Passion, or on Palm Sunday, the best way to understand Palm Sunday is through the lens of expectations. In fact, I would offer that you cannot fully understand, uh, appreciate the magnitude of Easter without first understanding the expectations that surrounded Palm Sunday in the first century. And let me start by defining expectation so, so we're all on the same page. Expectation is a strong belief that something will happen or be the case in the future. But now, like this guy that, that bought the football, there's uncertainty around our expectations. And yet, isn't it true that we're deeply tied to our expectations? And this is why behavioral scientist Dr. Steve Maraboli adds the following warning. Expectation feeds frustration. It is an unhealthy attachment to people, things, and outcomes we wish we could control but don't. And perhaps this is why William Shakespeare concluded expectation is the root of all heartache. 
So what are your expectations about Jesus? It might be something like, you know, I expect Jesus to show me how I can be a better person. Or I expect Jesus to give me a good life. Or I expect Jesus to bless my life. Or I expect Jesus to, you know, make me happy. Or I expect Jesus to provide for me. Or I expect Jesus, you know, to be there when I need him, to take care of me, to watch out for me, to never let anything bad happen to me or uh, to the people that I care about. And more importantly, how do these expectations frame how you think about this week leading up to Easter? And today we're going to talk about, uh, you know, what three different groups of first century Jews expected about Jesus on Palm Sunday when he entered into Jerusalem. And we'll see how these expectations can inform our own perspective during Holy Week and on Easter. And finally, we'll talk about what it is that we need to do in response. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles, open them up to uh, John chapter, chapter 12, and we'll be starting in verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So here's what's happening. Uh, Jews from all over have arrived in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Old Testament law uh, required Jews to visit uh, Jerusalem where the temple, temple was located three times a year. These pilgrimages represented key religious events in Israel's history. The Passover celebrated the exodus from Egypt and how God passed judgment on the Egyptians for enslaving the Israelites. And so as punishment, uh, God killed every firstborn male in Egypt, yet instructed the Israelites to sacrifice a lamb and take blood uh, from that lamb and paint it above their doorsteps of their homes. And then in doing so, uh, the angel of death would uh, pass over those houses and, uh, and those families, those children would be spared. Then there was the, the Pentecost festival, which celebrated the giving of the law. And then finally, the Tabernacles festival, which celebrated the time that Israel uh, wandered in the desert for 40 years uh, before God allowed them to enter into the promised land. Now, typically, Jerusalem's population was about 50,000 people. But during the celebrations like Passover, there would be close to 120,000 people. Size-wise, Jerusalem was not a very big place. It was only 0.7 square miles. And to put that in perspective, Westerville is 12.61 square miles. And as of the, the 2020 census, Westerville's population was 43,416 people. So, so think about that for a second. Uh, that means that, uh, it, that in Westerville uh, is around 3,500 people per square mile. And yet in Jerusalem at Passover, there was close to 120,000 people in less than one square mile. It was loud. It was busy. It was wall-to-wall -wall people. 
You can imagine how difficult it would be to keep peace when, you know, that many people are crowded together like that. And you couple that with the fact that the Jewish people longed for liberation from the Romans who uh, occupied that area and ruled over them. And so every year at Passover in Jerusalem, the atmosphere was at a fever pitch. It was like, new, it was like, it was like being in New York City on New Year's Eve night. But now why did the Jewish people want to be liberated? Well, Jewish historian uh, Josephus gives us some insight in his writings. He described how Pontius Pilate, uh, who was governor of that area, and you know, he played a, played a key role in Jesus's crucifixion, uh, was unbending and severe. And that Pilate was accused of bribery and cruelty and countless murders. And Josephus' writings, you know, chronicled a number of, of events that, that provoked these, these Jewish riots. And the riots resulted in, uh, in Jews being imprisoned, in beatings, in executions. In other words, the Jews hated Roman authority and longed to be restored as, as their own sovereign nation. And the Old Testament promised that a king would come one day, a deliverer who would rescue the Israelites, much like God rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians, um, you know, on Passover. So every year, the Jews came to pass, came to uh, you know Jerusalem for this Passover festival. There was an excitement an expectation that, that this year could be the year their, their promised king would, would overthrow the Romans and liberate the Jewish nation and restore Israel to political and military independence and greatness. So the crowd expected autonomy. So when Jesus arrived, they, they waved palm branches, which, which symbolized victory and triumph. And they shouted, Hosanna, which means save us now. And they recited part of a verse from uh, Psalm 118 saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The actual Psalm reads, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They were ready for the promised King to arrive. Why? Because they expected that their king would overthrow the Roman government and establish Jewish autonomy. We know this to be true because earlier in the book of John, we see something similar happen when Jesus miraculously fed 5,000 people. You might recall the story, uh, but what happens after the miracle is most telling of all. John 16, 14 through 15 says, When the people saw the sign that he, Jesus, had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus didn't perform this miracle so they could make him king on their own terms, nor did Jesus arrive in Jerusalem uh, to meet their expectations to be an autonomous nation. Corporately, uh, the desire for autonomy is, is the right to self-government. And this is why there's so much tension when it comes to politics, by the way. But if you really think about it, the corporate desire for autonomy comes from the same desire for autonomy uh, at the individual person level 
Because, you know, at the, at the individual level, autonomy is the desire for self-directing freedom in, in, in moral independence. And spiritually speaking, it comes from this innate desire to be morally independent from God. In the field of psychology, uh, the innate desire for autonomy is called self-determination. Uh, this was a concept that was first introduced by Edward Deasy and Richard Ryan in their 1985 book called Self-Determination and Intrinsic Motivation in Human Behavior. Uh, Deasy and Ryan further uh, helped define self-determination as a person's own ability to manage themselves, to make confident choices, and to think on their own. So why did the Jewish crowd so desperately want to be an autonomous nation? You know, because they felt like they could do a better job at it than the Romans. And yet, throughout, Old throughout the Old Testament, we see the nation of Israel make so many terrible choices time after time that eventually God allows other nations, you know, like the Romans to come in and take over. And, you know, I, I don't think that, that at an individual level, you and I are much different. You know, we definitely want to manage our own lives, Right. Nobody, nobody tells us what to do. And on average, you know, we're pretty good, or at least we think we're pretty good at, at making the right choice. And certainly we put, a, we put a high value on independence and thinking for ourselves rather than someone else thinking for us or telling us how to live. And so we expect autonomy, but yet Jesus expects dependence. In fact, Jesus's expectation for our dependence on him is so strong that in John chapter 15, Jesus said he actually wants to prune away your autonomy so that you can grow more spiritually healthy. And furthermore, he says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. In other words, your desire for autonomy is actually a desire to be your own God. And Jesus said the only way to fight back against this is through dependence on him. And the second group of people we need to talk about is the disciples. The disciples expected success. Look at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. As Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, his popularity was at an all-time high. And John points out that the reason the crowd gathered around him in the first place was because Jesus had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And they were like, man, you know, if this guy has the power to do that, then he can certainly put the smack down on, on these Romans. But now imagine what it was like for the disciples. You know, they're just caught up in the excitement uh, of the moment. It, Jesus, it, Jesus was like their guy. And, and they've been part of Jesus's inner circle for the past three and a half years. So when the crowd was there cheering on Jesus, the disciples felt like, you know, they were part of that success too. 
And there was this feeling like, you know, man, let's just, let's just let these good times roll. Remember, the disciples, uh, you, know, you know, they saw so much more success than just Lazarus coming back from the dead. They were there when, when Jesus healed people and when Jesus cast out demons. Uh, and when Jesus taught in front of crowds of thousands of people. In fact, the disciples even got in on the action themselves because Jesus empowered them to, to perform some of the same miracles as well. So the disciples definitely believed that, that Jesus was the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Uh, but, you know, based on past success, you know, things were definitely trending towards Jesus restoring Israel's political autonomy. And, that, and, and, and listen, when that happens, look, uh, you know, they wanted to get in on that success as well. This is why at one point, uh, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, said, you know, hey, Jesus, you know, I like where this thing is going. Uh, you know, why don't you let us be like your vice presidents? In Mark chapter 10, uh, it says, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever you ask. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. On Palm Sunday, the disciples ex expected success, but in human terms. And because in human terms, you're successful if you're on the winning team. You're considered successful if you're producing results, right? That's why Peter got so upset when, when Jesus was trying to prepare the disciples at one point for this reality that his trip to Jerusalem wasn't going to be the kind of successful mission that, you know, they, that they thought that it was going to be. In Matthew chapter 16, 21 through 23, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised from the dead. But now listen to how Peter responded. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The disciples expected success in the same way you and I define success. But you know, if, if you define your relationship with Jesus in terms of earthly success, then what do you do with suffering? Because suffering and success don't necessarily go hand in hand if you think about it. A few weeks ago, now we were at the dinner table and, and my daughter Madeline was telling us about a research paper she was doing on legalizing assisted suicide. And she said, you know, she was in favor of, of that law getting passed. And I think that from, from a human perspective, you know, that, that makes sense. You know, maybe, maybe you know someone that's, that's been sick and, and suffered incredibly. And maybe you've experienced that yourself. No one wants to go through something like that or, or see something that the, someone that they care about go, go through something like that. So, you know, why not just create a legalized means to end that kind of pain and suffering? The Apostle Paul, though, offers a different perspective in Romans chapter 5. He says, not only that, but, but we rejoice in our sufferings 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And Paul's not just talking about suffering in terms of chronic pain. He's talking about hardship. He's talking about failure. He's talking about, uh, you know, your life not going as planned. He's talking about how it is that we can make sense of suffering, but from an internal perspective. Why? Because we expect success, but Jesus expects to sanctify our failure. That's why in the Beatitudes, Jesus says a bunch of stuff like, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and blessed are the persecuted. In other words, God's blessing, uh, you know, does not directly correspond to our definition of success. In fact, oftentimes it's the direct opposite. So what do you do with your suffering? What do you do with your hardship? What do you do when you feel like you've, you've checked all the right boxes uh, and, and your name should be, should be listed under the win column, but, but somehow it's still feeling like it's listed under the loss column? I want you to know, Jesus does more with our failure than our success because he uses it in the kingdom and he uses it to shape our character. Now, the last group of people we need to talk about are the Pharisees. The Pharisees expected influence. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So on Palm Sunday, uh, the crowd is excited for Jesus to be there. And the disciples are excited, but the Pharisees are not. Why? Because this is just another example of how the people's favor have shifted to Jesus and away from them. As religious leaders and gatekeepers of the Old Testament law, the Pharisees enjoyed elite social status. They had powerful influence at this time. And what they despised most about Jesus was that as his popular favor increased, theirs decreased. And ultimately, that's why they crafted a plan to, to get rid of Jesus once and for all. Let's think, about, let's think about influence and the power of influence in terms of social media. In 2019, Forbes published an article titled The Psychology of Influencer Marketing. And one of the focal points of the article had to do with what's called informational social influence. And this is the change in opinions or behaviors that occur when we conform to people who we believe have accurate information. And so what the authors discovered is that when uh, creators advocate for a brand or they post information, quote, they can trigger a psychological conformity effect on viewers through their position of authority or, or perceived tie to popular culture. And why does this matter? Because last year, uh, Pew Research did a, did a study that discovered 53% of Americans get their news from social media and another 22% from podcasts. This is influence. 
The Pharisees enjoyed massive influence over their fellow Jews, but, but Jesus changed that. So they tried to embarrass Jesus and they tried to, to undermine his authority and they made up lies about him, but none of it worked. So they did the only thing left for them to do, which was to try to get rid of Jesus altogether, right? It's a powerful temptation to desire influence over other people. This is why Christianity is so unique. Because the biblical understanding of influence is all about glorifying God rather than ourselves or our own agenda. Influence does not increase our personal gain. It increases God's fame. Jesus said as much in Matthew 5, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory uh, to your father who is in heaven. So how do you know if your desire for influence is out of control? Well, maybe it's, maybe it's by when you discredit others. Or maybe it's when you believe that the most important voice in the conversation is your own. Uh, or maybe it's how you get upset when other people don't notice you. If they don't notice all the good things that you're doing, the hard work you've put in, how much you're making a difference at work or in your family. Ultimately, Jesus said, any kind of influence you might have should be directed towards glorifying God, not yourself. So we have, you know, three different groups of people that were there on Palm Sunday all three had their own expectations about what they wanted to see happen. None of which fully lined up with what the Old Testament promised or what the rest of scripture attested to. And first of all, they missed a key detail about, about how Jesus arrived into Jerusalem. Verse 14, if you remember, says that Jesus came in to the city riding on a donkey. And the gospel writer John makes this Old Testament connection from the book of, uh, of Zechariah. Here's what it says in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of the donkey. Why will the king come onto the scene riding on a donkey? Because he's humble. That's the part they missed. Jesus, as the promised king from the book of Zechariah, would humble himself to the point of death on a cross because his salvation would come through sacrifice. His blood as payment for our sins. His death as the ultimate punishment instead of our own. So that by following King Jesus, his righteousness could become our righteousness. Another thing they missed uh, was the proclamation that John the Baptist had made earlier in Jesus's ministry. Now, when John the Baptist saw Jesus for the first time, he told everybody, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why is this important? Because Jesus was there on Palm Sunday as the Jews uh, were getting ready to celebrate Passover. Uh, and Jose uh, jo Josephus said uh, in, his, in his work, War Wars of the Jews, uh, that, that there were, uh, you know, 250,000 lambs sacrificed uh, over Passover. 
So do you see the irony there? The lamb of God had to pass by 250,000 lambs waiting to be slaughtered. And yet they all failed to recognize the fact that 250,000 lambs wouldn't need to be sacrificed anymore because the lamb of God would become the ultimate sacrifice. In order, in order to, to restore Israel to an autonomous nation? No, to take away the sins of the world. He rode in on a donkey, surrounded by lambs, and yet all the while, he was the one true lamb of God. But they all missed it because they didn't expect it. So what can we do to make sure that, that we don't make the same mistakes as well as we think about this, this passion week? And my encouragement this week is, is to think about your expectations about Jesus. And let me give you one way you could consider doing that. Something that my family and I are planning to do together uh, is going through this devotional by Alistair Begg called uh, The First Easter. Uh, here's a picture of what that looked like, uh, what that looks like. You can find it in your Bible app. At the bottom of, uh, of, of your Bible app, if, if, if you need some direction, you'll see a little magnifying glass uh, that says discover. I click on that, type in uh, the first Easter, hit enter, um, look for the section uh, called plans, and you should be able to find it in there. Uh, the devotional is, is eight days, so, uh, so starting today, uh, and it'll take you through uh, next Easter. Um, here's what I really like about the plan. After each day's devotional, it asks the same three questions. Number one, how is God causing me to think differently? And number two, how is God reordering my heart's affections? And finally, number three, what is God calling me to do as I go about my day today? In other words, the devotion helps you identify your expectations about God. So hopefully you can start to reorder your expectations properly. As we close out today, we're going to spend a few minutes to, to celebrate communion together. You know, traditionally, when uh, Jews celebrated Passover, families would uh, gather to eat the sacrificial lamb meal together. And they would drink four glasses of wine throughout the meal as they retold the Passover story in Exodus. The second glass of wine is interesting. This is when the youngest child at the table asks like a scripted list of questions about the Exodus. And it always started with this question first. Why does this night differ from all other nights? And go ahead and, and grab your communion elements at this time. Uh, if you still need them, we've, we've got some folks in the back that can help you with those. Um, you know, we take communion together as we look ahead to Easter Sunday. And we take this communion as it represents the, the final answer to that child's question. Why does this night differ from all other nights? You could go ahead and, and remove your, your bread wafer at this time uh, it, because on what we know to be uh, coming up for Good Friday, in the afternoon, this moment of time was different from all others because Jesus died on a cross as payment for your sins as mine, your sins and mine as the final sacrificial lamb. 
He tells us, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup of wine and he said, this cup, this cup is, is poured out for you. It's a new covenant of my blood. Let's all, let's all take a minute and, and stand together. I want, you to, I want you to close your eyes for a couple minutes. Because we just celebrated communion together. And, and I want us to have some, some space to, to think about this. Uh, what we celebrate now as we look ahead to Easter is that Jesus' sacrifice and death on a cross isn't the end of the story. Easter is about resurrection. And you would think that, that that's the best part. But the best part is actually yet to come. It's when Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes back to reign and rule on earth. We see this in the book of Revelation. I want you to listen closely to these words uh, from Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Think about that. The greatest worship gathering in the history of mankind. And what are they holding? They're holding palm branches. Why? Because Jesus isn't riding on a donkey anymore. And he doesn't have to pass through 250,000 lambs waiting to be slaughtered. He's not there to be a sacrifice. He's there as the righteous king, ruling and reigning for all eternity. While we wave palm branches together in celebration. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Forgive us for the expectations we have of you. Expectations that, that oftentimes are about what we want, not about what you want. Please help us. Thank you, Father, that, that the good news about Jesus, you know, isn't going to end on Palm Sunday with, uh, with sacrifice. And it doesn't end next week in, in resurrection. Instead, Father, we look forward to the day when, when we wave palm branches together in heaven as we worship the Lamb of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I hope you have a great week.